0: This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big Question, is Jesus' resurrection history's greatest hoax? We're asking today's Bigger Question to Dr. Michael Lacona. Mike is a New Testament scholar and historian. He works as a professor at Houston Baptist University He's also been the director of Risen Jesus, an organization providing authentic answers to questions about Jesus and the Gospels for over 20 years. He's a popular author, debater, and speaker, and he joins me now. Mike, welcome to Bigger Questions. Well, thanks, Robert. Pleasure to be with you again. It's wonderful to have you. Now, Mike, you've been researching, debating, discussing, and speaking about the resurrection of Jesus for a long time. Does it get boring thinking and talking about the same topic over such a long period? (laughs) Not at all. I don't think the
1: subject's boring, but sometimes I get bored with myself, you know, because you say <laughs> the same thing over and over and over. And um, so sometimes I will change my presentation. I'll, I'll approach it. I've got a couple of different ways of approaching the, the resurrection. I'll do that just to make it fresh for me. But um, right. no, I don't think it is, is at all a boring subject.
0: Okay, right. Yeah. The topic still in, inspires you and interests you after all this time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But we do like to kick off bigger questions with some smaller questions just to get us thinking. And Today, we're asking Dr. Mike Lacona if Jesus' resurrection was history's greatest hoax. So, Mike, our smaller question to you today is about hoaxes. Okay, there's one question and it's multiple choice. In 2017, the History Channel released a 10-part series where they explored some of the world's biggest hoaxes. Now, which of the following did not have an episode devoted to it? Was it A, Hitler's Diaries? B, The Loch Ness Monster, C, The Resurrection of Jesus, or D, How to Charge an iPod with Gatorade and an Onion. So which of those was did not have an episode devoted to it in this 10-part series with the History Channel?
1: Oh no. Well, I mean, the first thing that come to my mind would be, of course, the, you know, these others they would do ahead of the resurrection, but I'm sure they did the resurrection. I'm gonna say
0: the onion and Gatorade thing on the iPhone. Well, unfortunately it's not. (laughs) They didn't do an episode on the Resurrection. They did do an episode on how to charge an iPod with a Gatorade and an onion and and all the internet hoaxes that are apparently out there because apparently you actually can't charge an iPod with a Gatorade and an onion. I'm not sure if you've ever tried that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds appealing. (laughs) So whilst it didn't make the history channel's documentary there are many critics of Christianity who claim that Jesus and in particular his resurrection is effectively a hoax it just didn't happen yet many people sincerely believe it to be true now can you appreciate uh, why they'd make that claim for it does seem pretty far fetched that you know a man was raised back to life i mean hitler's diaries and the loch ness monster are at least appear plausible yeah, I mean, I can I can appreciate that that some people have a difficult
1: time accepting it if it's uh, especially if they've been raised in a secular uh, culture, a secular nation, uh, their whole lives. And you know, let's say someone comes from China, where they're just not used to hearing religion, or or North Korea, you know, they're not he- they're they're not used to it and hearing about miracles. And then all of a sudden, yeah, this man came back from the dead. You know, that's beyond anything of your own experience or even anything you've ever heard. And so you're going to have problems swallowing that. Mm.
0: But don't hoaxes just show that people are just gullible? So all the major hoaxes on the History Channel documentary were believed by modern people. So what about something originating in the ancient world where people were uneducated, superstitious, and unsophisticated? Isn't that just a bit too much to believe?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, you don't have to uh, bifurcate modern culture from ancient culture we also have superstitions we also have things like fake news and people gullible to all kinds of things that's why they fall for stuff on the internet that's why mm. they get scammed out of their money they just there's just new ways of doing it today that weren't available in antiquity so
0: i don't and that's know why they, they that's- plug ipods into onions to try to power them
1: Yeah, that's right. So I don't know that, uh, you know, it's necessarily that we are less gullible today than they were back then. You still have to look at the data. And you can say that there are a lot of people who are gullible, and there are, there were a lot of people gullible in antiquity. There are a lot of people gullible today. But that doesn't mean we can't look at the evidence and arrive at uh, uh, solid, reasonable conclusions.
0: Hmm. So you're saying that perhaps people in antiquity and, and people today are a bit more similar than perhaps we've often thought? Probably, I mean,
1: I, I I don't remember where it was, but I do remember somewhere reading Cicero, where he talks about the foundation of Rome, the foundation stories of Rome, with Romulus and Remus, and that uh, Romulus end up killing Remus, and they had both been raised by a woodpecker and 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 how Romulus was uh, uh, assumed into heaven during a thunderstorm. and And he said, you know, we got to be really careful, you know, not to look too deeply into this story um mm. so i mean they it's not that they were all they weren't even credulous about their their own foundation myths necessarily
0: mm. so but is there something to the idea that whilst hoaxes convinced people for example the the war of the world broadcast in 1938 convinced people that the world really was being invaded yeah yet hoaxes were all eventually discovered as fraudulent so couldn't the resurrection of jesus just simply be the greatest hoax that for people still claim it to be true today Well, Robert, I'd say anything is possible,
1: right? And unless we could ever get into a time machine, return to the past and verify and actually witness the resurrection of Jesus, we'd have to say, at at least in theory, anything is possible. But, you know, it's possible that when you leave your house today, you're gonna get hit by a car. That's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um but you don't necessarily not go out of your house because of that. Mm -hmm. Because you know, you'll be cautious and you say at all probability. I'm not gonna get hit by a car. I'm gonna be safe because, you know, we can do the same thing with historical investigation. We can say, well, yeah, it could be the greatest hoax ever. And maybe they did something to make this hoax that we're just not seeing today. But you can second guess anything and everything with that. But we have to go with probability. What does the evidence point and anything we believe is gonna be a step of faith of some sort of faith but I want my faith to be a reasonable faith that's based on data, hard data and evidence. And we have that for the resurrection.
0: Mm. Now, it was said about the Hitler diaries that the appetite for them to exist was huge. Sunday Times journalist Brian MacArthur claimed the discovery of the Hitler diaries offered so tempting a scoop that we all wanted to believe they were genuine. So it seems like people wanted them to exist. So, isn't this the same with the resurrection of Jesus, that his disciples wanted him to live on? So, they developed the biographies of the life of Jesus and his resurrection? I I mean, again, you could say anything is
1: possible, but um, that being the case, why would these disciples? But We can know, we got enough data to show that they all suffered terribly for their gospel proclamation, which, and as they saw, like Peter, and Paul and James the brother of Jesus we know that they were martyred for their their gospel proclamation and beliefs so if they see their colleagues being martyred and they go out and they proclaim the same thing and withstand all sorts of persecution you know that they are willing to die for their beliefs and so why are you going to do that for something you know is false Mm. You know, you're going to do this, you're going to be willing to suffer and die for something you believe is true, but you're not going to have all these disciples that die or suffer and are willing to die for something they know is false. Liars mm. make poor martyrs. Mm. So, um, and that's why today, virtually every scholar who studies the subject, not just Christians, but also agnostic, atheist, and and Jewish They all acknowledge that the disciples truly believed that Jesus had been raised and had appeared to them. And so the question is, what led them to that belief? And as Mm. Dale Allison of Princeton says, the answer to that question is the prize puzzle of New Testament research.
0: Mm. That is the prize puzzle, and probably at the heart of today's big question. Um, For some, it does seem that the resurrection is just too hard to believe. So, Because someone on Twitter once wrote someone stealing a body or a hoax is far more logical than a dead person coming back to life if a body goes missing today do you assume resurrection is the most likely explanation of Mm. course not so mike what is the evidence what what do you consider the why do you consider the resurrection the most plausible explanation for the data
1: let me say something first um if i got a report that one of uh, my former roommates from college had died, and I'd heard this report say five years ago, and then let's say I'm at an event, a conference I'd spoken at, and I'm at dinner, and that roommate that I had thought was dead walked up to me and started talking and say, hey, I watched your debate tonight, uh, the debate, or I heard your lecture. That was great. Thanks. I wouldn't think that this guy had come back from the dead. I would think instead that either I misunderstood what someone had told me and confused them for someone else or the person who told me that got their information wrong. I wouldn't think this former roommate had risen from the dead. But let's say I'm at this event and afterward I'm having dinner and both my parents walk up and say, hey, Mike, man, love you, son. Uh, Great job on the lecture, debate, whatever. And uh, just want to let you know, keep up the good work. Well, I buried both my parents, Mm. and if they said, God sent me back to tell you this, to encourage you, I would believe they had risen from the dead, you know, because I've got evidence at that point. I wouldn't Mm. think that it was a hoax. I wouldn't think that I was hallucinating. I would think that I'd actually seen them. Mm. So it depends on what the evidence is.
0: Mm. Well, maybe let's investigate some of the evidence because one of the key pieces of evidence used to demonstrate the historical reality of the resurrection is found in one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen three to 5 he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. So how is this significant then as testimony to the resurrection?
1: Well, it's quite significant. I mean, think about this for a moment. Paul was writing this in 1 Corinthians, which most scholars would date somewhere between the years 53 and 56. Now, we're not certain when Jesus died by crucifixion. It was either in April of the year 30 or April 33. That's where scholars are on this. So let's just call it April 30. It's pretty much 50-50 among scholars. But 30 is around date, okay? So if we're talking 53 to 58, or 53 to 57, I think it is where most scholars are, the most we're talking about is 27 years. And Paul says here, I delivered to you, Corinthians, what I also received. Well, when did he deliver it to him? Well, mm-hmm. probably in the year 51 when he established the church there in Corinth. So now he gave it to them within 21 years, at most, of the crucifixion. Mm-hmm maybe even three years less than that, but 21 years after. And he received it. So he received that information prior to 51. So we're looking no more than 21 years and and probably less. When did Paul receive it? We don't know. Um, Even skeptical scholars like Robert Funk, of the the late Robert Funk of the Jesus Seminar. Um, You've got Garrett Ludeman. He's an atheist New Testament scholar. Uh, Both of them are saying things like, Two to three years at most after the crucifixion, that this oral tradition that Paul quotes—that he says he received—that Paul received it within two and two to three years, or it was formulated two to three years within the crucifixion. I don't know that that's that that they're correct on that. I don't see evidence for that. It could be. It could be, as James D.G. Dunn uh, wrote, that he thought that the creed was uh, oral tradition there in First Corinthians fifteen three through seven was uh, formulated within six months of the crucifixion. I don't know where he gets that, though. There's no data for that. Mm. Um, I would like to say two to three years. I'd like even more to say six months. What we do know for sure, because it's all guesswork, what we do know is prior to the year 51, and Paul received it from people, probably the Jerusalem apostles, that's where that kind of stuff came from, that certainly included the... Resurrection of Jesus, and most likely, who Jesus' identity, his deity, as well. So, I mean, Paul is just a tremendous source because Mm. we've got his words in letters like Galatians and First Corinthians are undisputed letters written by Paul. Mm. So, I mean, it's really strong data.
0: He's out of the cards in our hand, he's our ace. But some, because some critics claim that the resurrection narratives in the New Testament were written many years after the supposed resurrection took place and embellished, uh, and, and but surely that would diminish its credibility?
1: I don't think they're written too long afterward, and and certainly all of the Gospels are written within um, living memory of, mm-hmm. of Jesus. An Australian scholar, um, Robert MacGyver, published through the Society of Biblical Literature, and um, in there he talks about how uh, given m- multiple studies in um, the average lifespan uh, back then and the population, estimated populations in the areas, he he estimates that there were probably six, around 62,000 people ages 15 and above who heard Jesus speak, who heard him teach. Mm. And he said, given the typical lifespans, um there would have been somewhere between I think it was 13 and 17,000 eyewitnesses of Jesus who would still have been alive when around the time the gospel of Mark was written and even by the time you get to when John was written in the 90s there would have still been somewhere between 600 to 1100 eyewitnesses still alive. So all four gospels are written within the living memory of of Jesus. I point hmm. this out too i know I, there are there are still here in the united states i'm sure there are where you are in australia um world war ii vets well world war ii was over what 76 years ago mm. um and these world war ii vets are still alive and are able and they're still interviewed for documentaries now if we're going to say that these gospels were written too long after the events they purport to describe stop interviewing these world war ii vets because the distance between World War II and today is longer than the distance between Jesus' death and when the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, was written. One Mm. final thing I'd say here, and we could go on. Um, Plutarch is considered the greatest of all ancient biographers, and we learn a lot about the ancient world from Plutarch. When he's writing some of his more popular biographies, that of the late Roman Republic, people like Caesar and Cicero and Pompey and Antony and Brutus and and that gang, you know, uh, some of the most interesting people and events in all of human history in that time, the transition from Roman Republic to Empire. He's writing at least 140 years after those events, and he's claiming at that point that he's got great sources um, from which he's drawing to put these together to form accurate biographies. The Gospels are written within 20 to sixty-five years after the the death of Jesus, and so these are there's no reason to think that these are too long after the events.
0: But also, we have what was written here in one Corinthians 15 as well, which predates the uh, probably the final form of all of the gospels, doesn't it? That's correct. Hmm. What about you then, Mike? Because you had a bit of a crisis of faith at one point. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your story, and then what convinced you that the resurrection was actually trustworthy?
1: Yeah, fair question. So we go to 2003, and I was finishing up finished up that book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus that Gary Habermas and I co authored. And I asked them at the end, I said, Gary, you know, why is it that scholars look at all the same data, but they arrive at different conclusions. And who are these scholars? He said, well, most of them are New Testament scholars. You get a few philosophers, hardly any professional historians and nothing written by a professional historian more than a very short book or maybe a journal article or two. And I said, well, since this is a historical question, wouldn't it be best if a historian looked into this? And he said, well, it'd be interesting if they did an in-depth study. And I said, well, I want to do that. I want to learn about the philosophy of history and historical. well." So I start to study it. This became my PhD research. and and applying this philosophy of history and historical method to the resurrection. And as I'm getting into this, I'm reading the philosophers of history and they're all talking about how we all are plagued with our own horizons, our own biases and the way we look at the world. And it's like a pair of glasses with tinted lenses that color the way that we see things. And it, is a huge threat to the integrity of one's investigation. And I think that that has become the main reason why you've got so many different opinions uh, on the resurrection. So what I wanted to do, Robert, was I wanted to do the best I could to look at things objectively. And mm. I should have struggled. I'm a second guesser and a triple guesser and a quadruple guesser. And it's like, you know, I, I wanna know truth and I doubt, at times i always have but i mm-hmm. i doubt not just my religious beliefs or faith i i doubt did i get the right car did i marry the right woman did i buy the right watch and and thing, i mean all these kinds of things second guess, and every uh, by the way i got a great wife so uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so you know i do that and that happened with resurrection and so once i realized that i got my own biases i said you know what maybe if i do an investigation with the utmost integrity that I'm able to have personally. Maybe someone can have more, but the most I could have and not fearing truth, but fearing that I will miss truth because of my biases. Let me do the best investigation, most thorough investigation I can do and see what kind of conclusions uh, at which I Mm -hmm. can arrive. And so, man, I went through tremendous doubts during that time because I was trying to absorb what the skeptics were saying not only read what they were saying and understand it, but feel what they were feeling to try to enter their minds to say, why are they thinking this? And can I empathize, even sympathize with what they're saying and look at this as objectively as possible? And that's why it took me longer. It, it took me five and a half years. My, my Whereas writing a 20-page double-spaced paper with a few footnotes was a nightmare for me in grad school. My doctoral dissertation was over 500 uh, pages, A4 pages, single spaced and more than 2,000 footnotes. And finally, my doctoral supervisor said, Mike, it's time to start wrapping this up. And I said, But, but, Prof, I still have more I want to do. He said,
0: You need to wrap this up. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, did you contemplate jettisoning your faith? You know,
1: I would say this in all honesty. There were numerous occasions, more than I can account, during my research where I was on a knife's edge of going one way or the other. And for me, I thought that there was enough evidence still to show that God existed. Um, I believed that I'd had experiences of answered prayer and things like that during my years as a Christian. um, I think that my options would have been either just saying, we can't prove the resurrection, maybe it happened, but historically, it's not enough. Um, I'll remain a Christian by faith, my faith will be weaker than ever, um, but I will probably remain a Christian um, I might not be a Christian. Maybe I'll just go to belief in God, a theistic belief of some sort. That would have been a possibility. So, either a theistic, general theistic belief, or remain a weak, a, a Christian with a weak faith. Um, the other option would be I remain a Christian with a strong faith because my conclusions led me to the view that the evidence strongly supports the position that Jesus rose. And that's where I ended up.
0: Um so yeah. what pushed you there in particular what was it what was it, what was convincing to you to push you to the strong faith rather than this weak faith or or no faith at all when i when i looked at the data and when
1: i applied historical method as i was proceeding through my my research i i had the sense that at the end i was still going to come out thinking jesus rose but i had no idea how strong the resurrection hypothesis is compared to competing hypotheses. There just is nothing that even comes close to the strength of the resurrection hypothesis. And that excited me.
0: So then what difference then does the resurrection
1: make for you then, Mike? Well, it gives me a sense of purpose in life because if God truly loves me, then I have value, just simply because I was created in His image and that He loves me. That in and of itself, without me accomplishing anything in life, he loves me for who I am because I was created in his image. And that's that's pretty amazing to grasp when you think about it. Hmm. Um, my mom died in 2013. My dad died a year later. So they've been gone for uh, seven, eight years, right? The summer will be seven, eight years. I miss them. But you know, when they died, even though I grieved, my grieving was limited. Because, I mean, it really truly was limited because, and and it wasn't nearly as deep as it could have been. Why? Because I believe I'm going to see them again because they were followers of Jesus. Now contrast that with two years ago, when our family put our beloved dog of 16 and a half years down. I mean, right now I can think, uh, remember it's burned into my memory of going to the vet and myself holding my beloved dog when the vet put that uh, medicine or whatever you call it in it, the chemical to put the dog to sleep and then to kill the dog. And when the vet put the stethoscope on the dog and said, she's gone, thinking just one minute ago, she was alive, this dog that we love so much. And my wife will tell you that I cried more and And she'll say she's only seen me cry in over thirty years of marriage less than she could count the times on on one hand. You know, because I've got this belief it takes a big man to cry, but it takes an even bigger man to laugh at that man. Um, I you know, I just don't feel like crying. It's not that I try to hold it back. I just I'm not emotional in that sense, okay? But mm. she will tell you that I cried a whole lot more over that dog than I did both of my parents' deaths combined. And the reason, Robert, is because I have no assurance I'm ever going to see that dog I loved again. I, I have no assurance of that. I may never see her again. And the thought of that was just crushing at that time.
0: Hmm.
1: I can't imagine it would be like when a loved one dies and you don't have that hope. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We rejoice and have hope because Jesus rose from the dead. That is the guarantee that we're going to see him again. It guarantees, it's our guarantee, our promise that we can have eternal life and that we can see our loved ones again because they have eternal life. And that gives me great hope. I could go Mm -hmm. on, you know, about how we got hope in this life as well because we know God and he answers prayers and he gives us wisdom and things like that. But so, there's benefits to being a Christian in this life. But of course, there's great benefits for the Mm. the life to come. And that's Mm. what the resurrection does. It gives us hope.
0: Mm. So Mike, is Jesus resurrection history's greatest hoax? Not at all. I think there's
1: good reasons, very good reasons to think that Jesus rose from the dead, historical reasons. And I that excites me.
0: Mm. And they can change your life as well amen he's changed mine let me leave you with some of the bible's answer to the big question is jesus resurrection history's greatest hoax from 1 corinthians 15 3-4 for what i received i passed on to you as of first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared to cephas and then to the 12. i look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions many thanks to our guest today dr mike lacona Thank you, Robert. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com biggerquestions.